Hey, everyone. Thanks for coming back to Hollywood Sports Mom. And as I mentioned in some previous episodes, there's so much fun stuff to talk about. Hollywood, celebs, athletes, and, and that kind of stuff. But there's also a lot of life stuff I want to touch upon. And the next three episodes are going to be sort of near and dear to my heart. Um, and they'll be different. And they have to do with my struggle with infertility and um, a long, long seven-year journey my husband and I unexpectedly went on. You know, I was that girl who in her teens, I knew I wanted to be a mom. It's like the only thing I wanted. And I remember I was having surgery on my fallopian tubes when I was 19 in college and I was being wheeled in and I was under anesthesia. And I just looked at that doctor and I said, Dr. Hans, please make sure I can have babies someday. And when I emerged from the surgery, the first words I heard her say when I was coming out of anesthesia was, Carol, everything's okay. You're going to be able to have babies. Um, and from that point on, I had no problems, you know, when it came to girl parts or anything else, like everything seemed fine. Um, but I want to share this story because one of my favorite quotes of all time is, is from the movie Wall Street. And basically, um, one of the characters says, your life, like life boils down to just a few moments. And I think that's really interesting. And for me, you know, sure, I have a, a career, a great career, but the other big moment in my life is my marriage. And then this unexpected, really trying journey um, we went on together. And my husband and I endured seven years of, of struggle, tears, major, major money spending. Um, and yes, believe it or not, even some humor throughout our our struggle to have a baby, um, because humor is the only thing that could get us through. Our story um, ended happily. And I want you to know that if you're out there suffering through some of the same miscarriages, through numerous IVFs, um, or, you know, getting that, quote, unexplained infertility response that I heard for so long, you're not alone. Um, and I, you know, my uh, producer, Drago, and I, we talked about doing this episode audio only. We thought, well, do we really need to do it in person? And then I kind of went back and I said, I want to do it in person because not a lot of people talk about this stuff. They consider it very private, which I understand. But I wanted to put a face to it. I wanted to put a face to what women um, could go through and, and hundreds of thousands of women are going to. Um, we talk about it in secret, but we don't really talk about it so publicly. And I will get choked up at times. <laughs> I will laugh at times. Um, so we're going to go on a, a journey of this story. But I promise you, it ends successfully. And I truly, truly believe yours can too. And pardon me if I have to peek at my notes occasionally. <laughs> but I remember when, you know, George, my husband George and I got married later. We didn't meet each other until we were 35. By the time we went through the whole courting and got married, I was turning 39. And so we knew, you know, we didn't have time to mess around, but I also felt a little bit confident in that my sister had a baby, you know, later in her thirties, my mom, you know, could pop out kids left and right, um, without any problem. And so I just kind of figured, okay, well, you know, historically speaking and genetics wise, I'm probably fine. But unfortunately that's not how it works, um, in the fertility world. And I see it 
with a lot of families. You know, there's an assumption you're going to be fine because other relatives were, but that doesn't happen all the time. And I remember after we got married, we were living in Santa Monica, California. We go to a coffee shop, Pete's Coffee, every morning. And, you know, you develop friendships with people in the coffee shop. And a lot of our friends were much older than we were. And there was this guy, Joe. He was this, like, 70-ish hippie guy from Topanga Canyon. And he'd walk in, you know, really brisk every day, get his coffee, he'd sit down with me and, like, talk to me about a headline or something every day. And one day he came and he sat down and he was like, so, Carol, are you and George going to have kids? And I was like, whoa, like, <laughs> didn't expect that one to come. Um, and I said, well, yeah, of course. He's like, okay, okay, well, you know, what, you're, you're going to get on that soon, right? And I was like, well, yeah. I said, Joe, um, you know, some, for some people it takes a little bit longer and sometimes there's some challenges along the way. So we're just working through that. And he said, Carol, just, just go to Hawaii. Everyone gets pregnant in Hawaii. And he got up, espresso in hand and left. And I kind of, you know, wanted to scream and be like, Joe, we have already spent $20,000 on, you know, three IUIs, all this Clomid medication. Um, you know, nothing's working. We spent crying nights, but you can't say that. So you just kind of respect the older person. Okay, sure. Yeah, we'll go to Hawaii. Um, but I really wanted to scream at him and, and his insensitivity. And then two months later, George and I found ourselves going to Kauai, um, which in my opinion is the most beautiful island of Hawaii. We had a friend that lived there. and. It's really, if you've never been, a, 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 an enchanting place. Um, there's not much to do, but that's the way it's supposed to be. It's a really chill lifestyle. There's little villages, and every day, pr practically every day, there's a, like a, sun, a rain shower at like 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And then it's always followed by rainbows. It's really spectacular. And it just felt like, I don't know, it kind of felt like heaven on earth. Um, and two weeks after we returned home, I realized I was pregnant, <laughs> naturally pregnant, by the way, um, to which my fertility doctor, who had done all the IUIs um, and an IVF or two, told me was impossible. He told me I'd never get naturally pregnant. Um, so oddly, though, even though I hadn't mentioned it to George, I, I came home from Kauai with this, this feeling of, I think I'm pregnant. It was like just this instinct that I knew, which is what made me go by the test. And when that test came back with the two little lines on it saying positive, I just fell on the bathroom floor crying tears of, of happiness. And I, I couldn't wait for George to get home to share the big news. And I sat there thinking, damn you, Joe, like <laughs> you were right, go to Hawaii and get pregnant. So lesson learned, always believe like older hippie people from Topanga Canyon, they know what they're talking about. Um, but that first fertility doctor had been such a bomb and nothing worked. And he told me I could never have kids. I had already, before we went to Kauai, moved on to my next fertility clinic. And I was working with a woman doctor and everyone in town in L.A. called her the miracle worker. Um, they said, you know, she's really good with women in their late 30s, early 40s and, and having them realize the dream of, of pregnancy. Upon meeting her, I realized exactly how much my previous doctor was just a loser. Like he, he over-medicated me. He um, never even switched up my medicine protocol when things weren't working. He just had his way of doing it. Pump them with meds, see if they get pregnant. Now that works for some women, but not all. And so my new doctor went through that and she's like, listen, you know, I can't um, promise you I'm going to find you a healthy embryo through IVF, but I'll guarantee you mine will look better than his did because 
you know, his, the chromosomes were all off all over the place. She's like, might've been look better than that. Cause I'm not going to over-medicate you. Um, so when I got back from Hawaii, I said, oh my gosh, I just went to this new doctor for a consultation and to start working with her. We haven't even done an IVF. I've got to go tell her I'm, I'm naturally pregnant. So I show up and I surprise her and I'm like, you're not gonna believe this. I went to Hawaii and I'm pregnant. And she said, that's awesome. And she said, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic because you know, you are 41 years old. And, um, so she made an appointment for me to come in later that week to check on things. And George joined me. And when she started looking at the ultrasound, she got a big smile and she said, are you ready? And we were like, okay. And she turned up the volume and you just heard ba-boom, 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 like our first baby's healthy, beautiful heartbeat. Um, and my husband in his sweet innocence, he's just has this sweet, innocent nature about him. He heard the ba-boom, 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 and he just blurted out, oh my gosh, it sounds like Beats by Dre. <laughs> so we ended up, you know, referring to our baby as baby Dre. Um, and it wasn't long before our fer new fertility doctor, who we barely had a chance to work with, said, congrats, you know, you're past 10 weeks. You can move back to your OBGYN now. And um, so we knew, we didn't know if Dre was a boy or a girl. Uh, we knew that if it was a girl, we would end up naming her something cheesy like Kauai, just because, you know, that's where the miracle happened. But um, we were just so excited to be, have a ha healthy heartbeat, be pregnant. Um, and that night I came home and on my nightstand was a card and I opened it up and it was a graduation card. And it said, I'm so proud of you for graduating today, baby Dre. I love you, daddy. So sweet. So now that I'm graduating back to my regular OBGYN, I'm just a, your standard naturally pregnant woman. Um, I went to my OBGYN who was touted as one of the best in Beverly Hills. I was so excited to see baby Dre again and his or her heartbeat. But as my doctor did the ultrasound, she said pretty bluntly, there's no heartbeat. The heartbeat's gone. And I said, that's impossible. It was just here like a week and a half ago. Can you please, please check again? And she said, I've been doing this a long time and I know when there's no heartbeat. So she said, come to my office and we'll talk about a plan moving forward. So at this point, before I went to her office, I called George, hysterical, and he'd been at a work meeting and it was on the USC campus and my husband went to USC. So he just said, oh, oh my God. And he sat down on the campus bench that was there. He said, I never expected this. I'm so sad. I can't believe we lost Dre. And he sat there shedding tears on his alma mater's campus with this awful, shocking, surprise phone call. So a few days later, this OBGYN performed the DNC to remove the fetus because I wasn't miscarrying. Like I miscarried, but the baby was still in me. And she performed the DNC in her office. And the day before the procedure, her office called me to assure me that I'd be sedated and I had to pick up this prescription. And it's an awful prescription. It's a prescription that basically makes, starts forcing your body to miscarry because it's not doing it on its own. And I went in for the DNC and it was just marred with clubs and mistakes and everything was awful. I had never felt pain like this before. It was barbaric. I, I screamed out in agony the whole time with my legs up in those stirrups. And I remember the ultrasound tech, not the doctor, but the ultrasound tech just looking at me and, you know, she had a mask over her face, but she's looking at me like, you know, she was just so concerned. Like I could tell 
there was a look of panic and, and sympathy in her eyes. And the doctor started shouting, turn off the lights, turn off the lights. And the ultrasound tech was like, turn off the lights? Yes, turn off the lights. I guess as if turning off the lights would make all the pain go away, I, you know, dimming the lights. I, I don't know. Um, but the entire procedure was torturous and emotionally, both emotionally and physically. So we're driving home and I told George, I'm like, listen, I deserve a Big Mac. Okay. Like I normally don't eat Big Macs, but after what I've been through today, like I'm getting a Big Mac with a large fry. So we went through McDonald's. We got home. I'm devouring my treats. And I texted all my girlfriends to let them know that while that was the worst physical experience I could ever go through, that I was okay. And, you know, we're just starting over. And my one friend, Jessica, she said, wait, what? I don't understand. Why was it painful? She said, I had a DNC and I was knocked out the whole time. And I, I woke up after and I, I didn't feel a thing. And she said, did she not give you anesthesia? And I, I just like, I remember dropping my Big Mac. And I said, no, like I typed back and I said, she said I'd be sedated, but I, I'm not a medical professional. Like, I don't know what that means. I didn't know that meant like I wasn't getting anesthesia. So Jessica called me right away and I picked up and she said, who the F is this doctor? And she was shouting. And I said, listen, it's one of the best OBGYNs in Beverly Hills. She said, no, she's not. She said, you should have not felt a thing. You should have never gone through this. And the following day, my new fertility doctor, this wonderful woman called me and she said, hi, Carol, you know, because all the doctors talk, so they all know what's happening. And she said, I, I was going to call you yesterday, but I wanted to give you a day to let the anesthesia wear off and, and just call the send you my, you know, condolences and let you know we're going to, we'll try again together. And I said, well, doc, I said, I didn't have anesthesia. And I mean, I could hear her audible gasp, but then she tried to hide it, um, trying to be a professional. And she was like, oh, you weren't, you weren't given anesthesia. And I said, no, I was just sedated. And I said, I have to ask you, doc, if you had performed my DNC, how would you have done it? And she said, well, we would have sedated you with propofol, which is a painkiller, so you wouldn't feel anything. And she kind of said it in a way that was like hesitant as if she didn't want to out her colleague down the road for doing something so horribly unethical and, and painful. So, you know, what that sham OBGYN put me through that day was truthfully, it was the equivalent of a 1950s abortion. It was a barbaric scraping of a fetus from my uterus that had nothing to protect me while my heart and my insides were being shattered all at once. And so my follow-up appointment was two weeks later. She came in the room, this OBGYN, she goes, oh, how are you doing? And I said, well, physically I seem to be fine, but I gotta ask you, what the hell went wrong? And her stance stiffened and her jaw dropped. And she was very coarse. She said, I don't know. You know, we do DNCs here all the time. And quite frankly, yours was one of the worst ones we've ever done. So kind of like making me feel like the freak. And I said, really? So all your patients don't scream in the worst human pain possible, then come out and lay on a table still screaming in pain while their husband has to clean up all the bloody towels and everything else that are left behind. That doesn't happen every time. And I said, you're trying to tell me like all these other patients have endured having, you know, a baby taken out of them and scraped out of them by just using Tylenol and Valium. And I finally said to her, are we in Beverly Hills or are we in a back alley somewhere? 
And she shot back defensively. I'm sorry it didn't go as expected. And I said, well, why did all my girlfriends who had DNCs get anesthesia? And I said, why did my fertility doctor call me the next day and assume you gave me anesthesia and you didn't? And she said, we don't have an anesthesiologist here in the office. I assumed you knew that. The surgery center wasn't going to take you to do this till next week. And I didn't want you to go through the weekend with, you know, the fetus still inside you. So I figured I would do it here in the office. We explained to you, you'd be sedated as if I'm a medical professional and I'm supposed to know exactly what that means. So I shot back with Valium, like that was my sedation, like nothing for pain. Um, so we had a few more terse back and forths and um, I knew I'd never be stepping foot in her office again. And it just goes to show you that, you know, even Beverly Hills doctors can be some of the worst doctors on the planet. And a friend later explained to me, you know, hey, she may have been genuine in not wanting you to have to go the weekend with this scenario, but she may have also liked the idea of being able to charge your insurance company an insane amount of money to perform a DNC in her office, as opposed to sending you to a surgery center and them getting that insurance money. And it all made sense and it made my heart sink. I debated for weeks about just suing the shit out of her. Um, I wondered, you know, did she ruin my uterus forever? Am I going to get over this emotionally? The thing is, when you hear your biological clock ticking, like the last thing you need is additional stress put on you in any way. And I know that litigation, even if you have a strong case, which I clearly did, litigation regardless is stressful. And so I chose not to go that route. Um, I went back to my new fertility doctor and she kept her word. On her first IVF try with me, she found us a healthy embryo. And I remember where I was when I got that phone call. I was shopping at the Grove in Los Angeles. I got the call. I called back my friend Jessica and I was crying so hard, tears of joy. I said, Jessica, you know, we found healthy egg and healthy embryo. And I'm not barren like that past fertility doctor told me I was. Um, I still have healthy eggs. We just need to keep trying to find them. And so we, together we cried happy tears. And two months later, we transferred that healthy embryo into me. And I went crazy. Like I'm one of those, I maniacally bought pregnancy tests all the time <laughs> to just keep checking and checking and make sure, you know, see if, see if it was positive. And, you know, you're not supposed to do that during IVF. You're supposed to wait for the official blood test, but most women do it. Like they can't wait. They just want to know if it worked. So sure enough, a second line started popping up. It was positive and I was over the moon, but I kept taking pictures of the line darkening every day. And I would text them to Jessica, look, look, doesn't the line look a little bit darker than it did yesterday? And then I noticed the veins in my boobs started, you know, being more prominent. And I'm like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. So then I started taking pictures of that in the mirror. And I started sending pictures of my boobs every day to Jessica going, hey, don't they look a little bit darker than they did yesterday? And Jessica finally said, Carol, stop, stop spending hundreds of dollars on pregnancy tests at CVS. Stop sending me pictures of your boobs because it's getting really weird. You're pregnant. Calm down, relax, and just enjoy. So George and I, again, were cautiously excited after our first experience. Um, so we went back. Um, I'm sorry. We um, One Saturday morning, uh, George woke up. He said, listen, I'm going to go to the coffee shop and work. I said, that's great. 
And I was lounging around our home and I started to feel some weird twitches in my side. And I knew everything was probably okay. And it was a Saturday morning. So the fertility doctors were just there till like noon, but I called and I said, listen, I know I'm probably being neurotic, but can we just check and make sure everything's okay, especially after what we've been through? And she said, sure, I'm here till noon. Um, you know, come on in and we'll take a look at things. But she said, listen, don't be freaked out if you don't see a heartbeat because it's really early. I was like, no problem. So I was in her office within an hour. And as soon as she started the ultrasound, I knew by the look of on her face that my unbearable emotional pain was about to return. And she calmly said, but very sadly too, she said, this pregnancy is ectopic. It, it, it implanted in your right fallopian tube. And I am so sorry, but there's no way we can save this pregnancy. And she looked down really sad. And I knew she was fighting back tears because she had been, you know, on this journey now with us for a couple months. And she said, I'm disappointed and I'm sad because this was a really healthy embryo. The embryo has a beating heart and it's stuck in your fallopian tube, which is not common. She said, because an embryo needs nutrients from your uterus in order to thrive. And this embryo has no nutrients, but it still has a heartbeat in your fallopian tube. So after a hug, she, I sat up on the exam table with my tears obviously flowing uh, nonstop. And she said, we'll have to stop this pregnancy immediate, immediately. You can either take um, methyltrexicate, I believe that's how you pronounce it, um, which is a low dose form of chemo with some side effects. Or you can go to, emergence, to the emergency room for a fallopian tube removal and they'll remove the pregnancy too. So in between heaving and crying, I said, I'll have the surgery. And um, after she, she had known, you know, I left my other OBGYN who was terrible. She had already hooked me up with someone new who barely knew me. Um, and she said, I'm going to contact him and I'm going to see if he's available to meet you at Cedar sinai Hospital to perform the surgery. And she left. So I sat in that exam room, my dreams dashed again, bawling alone. And my poor sweet husband had to endure his second, just out of the blue, shocking phone call that's going to dash all his dreams that he never expected. Because um, remember, he, he didn't even have an idea that I had gone to the doctor. So I was sobbing. I could barely take breaths in between. I screamed, our baby's gone. We have to, our baby's going to be gone. And I explained it was an ectopic pregnancy. I said, you need to meet me right away at Cedar sinai Hospital. My new OBGYN, who I had just been hooked up with through this fertility doctor, he barely knew me, but he texted me and he said, listen, I'm at, I'm at a family party. I'm leaving in 20 minutes. I'm going to come and do the surgery for you, which speaks volumes, comparatively speaking, to the previous OBGYN. So as my husband drove really fast to Cedars, he started Googling ectopic pregnancy because let's face it, he's a guy. He doesn't know what this means. And he just kept seeing the words could cause death in the mother. And my poor husband, his dreams, you know, shot once again, then started worrying that he's going to lose me. And he started driving faster through the streets of LA to come see me. And I got to Cedar sinai and I had to go to the ER to register. And when I was there, the registration staff took notice of how emotionally distraught I was. And they asked me if I'm okay. And I said, well, I have an ectopic pregnancy and, um, and I'm going to stop my baby's heartbeat today against my will. Like I, 
I have no choice. I want this baby. And it's a healthy, beautiful baby in there. I said this all while sobbing, and the registration staffer just shrugged her shoulders and said, I'm sorry, ectopics are pretty common. You'll be fine. I wanted to jump across the table and grab her by the neck and shout, I'm 41 and a half years old. Like, it's hard to find good eggs. I've already been through an effing war. Do not tell me this is common and do not tell me this is okay. So minutes later, I was prepped by an ER doctor who assured me that my new OBGYN, he heard from him and he was on the way. And the entire time he was taking my vitals, I was just sobbing uncontrollably. And I could see the concern and empathy in the nurses. Um, there was a nurse there, a young nurse, in her eyes. You know, her mask was covering her mouth, but the eyes tell all. And she was just sitting there kind of looking at me, taking instruction from the doctor. So the doctor suggested they give me a sedative in my IV to just help me calm down. And of course, I was fine. I just wanted to be transported out of this hell and, you know, into a different space. So the young nurse, she went and scurried across the room. She prepped the IV and gave it to me right away. And it was then that I noticed she was six months pregnant herself. So the ER doctor said, okay, your OBGYN just got to the OR. He's, you know, almost ready. And George is now registering and on his way in too. He said, I, I'd like you to use the bathroom one last time before your surgery. Are you okay to go across the hall with your IV pole? And I calmly said yes, because I think the sedatives were starting to kick in and uh, get my emotions a little bit under control. So I went across the hallway, I used the bathroom, I was washing my hands, and I opened up the door, grabbed my IV pole to walk out. And there in the hallway stood that young um, attending nurse. But this time, her mask was down below her face. And she said, I read your chart. I know your past. I am so, so sorry. I needed to come and I needed to see you alone and I needed to just hug you and I needed to just cry with you. And with that, I collapsed into this nurse's arms. And there we were, one woman six months pregnant and another one about to lose a baby she wanted so badly. I mean, we were so physically and emotionally connected in that moment in a way that not many could or would ever understand. And I sobbed in her arms for a good minute and then she helped me back to my room. And I never got her name because my next few weeks were spent in bed crying and very sad. But truly, I, I really like to think of her as an angel. Like she was an angel who was meant to be on shift that terrible day. So the day after we lost our baby, I just wanted to lie in bed and cry all day. But George forced me to go to, beach, to the beach with him. We lived at the beach. It was right down the block. And he said, look outside. There's... It's a beautiful Southern California day. There's all these people coming from inland, going to the beach. We're five blocks away. We need to go. So I was like, ugh. So, you know, I threw on some exercise pants and a tank top because there was no way I was donning a bathing suit after a day after surgery, feeling so bloated and gross. Um, and there was, there was a celebratory vibe in the air, you know, and it's a beautiful Southern California day. Everyone just bombards the beach as thousands and thousands of people. Um, so we got to the beach and the beach was packed. Thousands of people. There's barely any space to sit. And George found a small, small spot. He threw down a chair and he threw down a towel. And I sat on the chair and then a bird flying above all over me. <laughs> Not joking. Out of the thousands of people frolicking in the sand that day, that bird in that moment chose me. 
And George started laughing, and then I started cracking up. And I said, you know, um, George, that's your dad again. We had lost his dad years earlier. We're convinced his dad sends us signs through birds. I know that sounds crazy, but I'll explain it in another episode. But a bird crapped on me. I said, that's your dad again. He's with us, and he's reminding us that life is going to hand us shit sometimes, but we have to get back up, and we have to trudge ahead regardless. And you know, when you go through something so dark and awful, this really interesting thing happens. Your phone, it never rings. <laughs> and it's not that anyone's doing anything wrong. You know, I mean, it's human. It's, it's a human reaction to just simply not, do, not know what to say to someone who's going through something so bad. So instead, you get, you know, a barrage of texts and emails, but your home remains eerily silent as you sit there, you know, in your own darkness. And the week after my ectopic pregnancy, my, my phone barely rang, um, except for three times. And the first was my friend Jessica. And I picked up and she was hysterically sobbing. And she said, I don't even know what to say to you. I don't know what to say, but I just had to call and I had to hear your voice. And the second call was from my longtime boss, Mike, and he called and was choked up. And he said, I just wanted to call you. I just wanted to talk to you and tell you I'm so sad and I don't understand why bad things keep happening to two of the nicest people I know. And the third call was my sister-in-law, Denise, who I could tell, you know, made sure my brother watched their little girl so that she could isolate, call me, and just like Jessica had done, cry with me, even though she didn't quite know what to say. And admittedly, I would have never had the bravery that Jessica, Mike, and Denise had. I wouldn't. I mean, I would have, I would have sent an email, you know, beautifully worded um, as well as I could to my friend or my family member in pain and just let them know I'm here. Um, and that's all still okay, by the way. Support is support. But I will never forget the people who picked up the phone and made what I'm going to call a really hard phone call. And I, I left that, that week telling George, you know, we learned a really big life lesson here. And we vowed to each other that as we continue to go through life, we would always follow their lead and we would make the hard phone call. So when our friends were getting divorced after 20 some odd years of marriage, as hard as it was, we picked up that phone and we, we called. When our friend came out as transgender and, you know, said, I'm leaving my wife of so many years and, and I'm going to have surgery and everything else. We weren't quite sure what to say, but we made that hard phone call to both of them. When my friend was suddenly diagnosed, diagnosed with breast cancer that had metastasized, again, didn't know what to say, but I picked up the phone and I was like, listen, I'll be your patient advocate. I'll come with you to every, you know, appointment. You tell me what you need and I'm here. We're in this together. And I always hated being the victim. I hate being the victim. I consider myself a winner. Um, and as well-meaning as it all was, I think when you hear days and days and weeks and weeks of people saying, I'm praying for you. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm praying for you. It becomes exhausting and it, it kind of becomes more depressing because it only solidifies when you hear that, that you're in a really bad place, like you're in a terrible place. Um, 
And it almost makes you retreat more into yourself and just want to avoid all communication because you're sick of hearing, you know, people feel bad for you. And I'm not knocking that again. I'm just relating how it feels to be in it. And I, I realize when people are at their lowest, whether they realize it or not, they crave powerful words. They want to be uplifted no matter how bad the scenario is. They need to hear your voice, even if you don't know what to say. When someone's going through something so dreadfully awful, they need to receive that hard phone call. And it was a lesson I learned from, from three dear friends and family. So after two miscarriages in one year, my doctor said, you need to go to a fertility therapist. And I said, no, I'm fine. I'm even happy and I'm running a marathon. I'm doing this and that. And they said, no, no, no. The fact that you're overly happy is probably a problem. So we want you to go to a fertility therapist. And I went and it was worth every single penny. She explained to me how reproductive loss is different. You know, with other losses in life, while they're never easy, you are given a ritual to say goodbye. You go to a funeral. You sit shiva. Um, but when you lose a baby, there's no ritual for that. There's nothing. You're just supposed to wake up, move on, go back to work, go back to family, go just go back to family occasions, go back with your life. Even though, you know, you're, you're going through life like, every, you know, everything's okay, but your nights are spent thinking about these little people you never got to meet. So my therapist told me, listen, in order for you to have a positive heart and to find more hope in your heart, you need to properly grieve. It sucks grieving, but you need to go through it. Like it's a human, you know, chapter you need to go through. And she wanted me to have my own ritual and she wanted me to say my own goodbyes. So she said, listen, you live at the beach. Why don't you write a letter to each of the two boys you lost and pour your heart out to them in each letter? And since you live at the beach, when you're done writing the letters, walk down to the pier and throw each letter into the Pacific Ocean. Like That's going to be your goodbye ritual. I'm going to get over this and I'm going to move on. So one night when my husband was out of town, I knew it was the right time, even though I dreaded it with all my heart. But this was something that felt so personal. Even I didn't, I didn't even want him there, the person who was closest to me. Like it had to be a solo thing I did. So I wrote two tear-stained goodbye letters, both on blue pieces of paper. And for the first time ever, I signed them and used the word mommy. And I threw on sunglasses and a hooded sweatshirt because I was like, you know, Manhattan Beach is still kind of a small town. And, and I, tonight was a night I just, I couldn't. I couldn't be noticed. I couldn't see any friends or anything. So I went down to the Manhattan Beach Pier and I sat on a bench holding my letters for a little while. And sunset in Manhattan Beach is beautiful and really popular. So um, I'm sitting there holding my letters and I'm watching the sunset and I look down to the sand and I see this young couple. They're having their engagement photos taken. And I thought, oh, how sweet. You know, but then I had this thought, I'm like, well, George and I just did that, you know, couple years ago. And, and then I just, it made me wonder like what, what joys and what sorrows lie ahead in their future. And then I look to the other side and I see this girl having a photo shoot in this beautiful orange flowy dress. And there's like a photographer's assistant there with a fan and it's making the flowy dress flow in the air. I'm like, how beautiful. 
And then I realized she's holding her belly and she's pregnant. And I'm like, oh, how nice. Like, these are her I'm expecting pictures. And then I look over and I see this couple with two toddlers and a red wagon. <laughs> They're having a photo session. But the toddlers are just not, like, cooperating. The little boy's throwing sand all over the place. The little girl just wants her mother to hold her and won't get in the wagon. And the parents, they look just so exasperated and, like, done with it. But the whole time I'm sitting there, I'm like, you know, I hope when they get home tonight and they're filled with sand and they're absolutely exhausted, like, I hope they, they never lose sight of how blessed they are. Because if they only knew someone like me is sitting up here at the pier watching them. And I believe sunset represents passages in life. Um, and so I sat there and I'm like, wow, I had seen a moment from my past, a couple moments from my past, the pregnancy and the couple, and then maybe one from my future. And these were all just kind of signs that I was, I was ready to let my letters go. So I walked to the end of the pier. I took the letter to my first baby I had lost, and I tossed it into the water. And in doing so, I have to say, I felt completely nauseous. Like, it just, there was something about it that made me feel sick. Um, but the letter floated, and then it disappeared underneath the pier. And I held my second letter for another, like, four minutes, maybe. Um, and then I let that one go as well into the water. And just like the first one, it disappeared, and it went underneath the pier. So I stayed there, staring at that beautiful ocean, um, choked up for a few minutes. And then I went to walk home. And the Manhattan Beach Pier is really long. And I went walking all the way to the end. And before I got off that pier back onto the street, I don't know what overcame me, but I, I turned around. Like, I turned around to go back. And I knew in my head, I'm like, Carol, your therapist would be yelling at you, no, don't go back. Move forward. Move forward. Um, but something made me go back. So I went back to the end of the pier and I looked over the edge and out there in the distance, I saw them and they were two blue letters and they were floating together, kind of riding the currents, probably a couple feet apart, like they were riding the waves together. And that nauseous feeling went away and I totally felt at peace. Because despite being put in the water, probably five minutes apart, they found each other under that pier. And there they were having fun riding the ocean currents together. And I will never get over either one of those losses. But there was something so therapeutic and magical about seeing those two blue letters emerge together from the waves underneath the pier. And my first boy, we've came to find out, um, had been sick. And my second was obviously perfectly healthy, like I just said. But I, I realized maybe this isn't about me. You know, maybe they needed to be together in heaven, taking care of each other for now. And maybe this was their way of letting me know, Mom, we're okay. You got to go be okay too. So I'm sitting there in this hugely deep moment and all of a sudden, I hear, excuse me, excuse me, ma'am. And I look over, and it's this group of teenage giggling girls. Can you take our photo? And I'm like, if they only knew what's going through my, my brain and my heart right now. But I realized then through these teenage girls that happy times, they do come again. You know, it was kind of funny. Um, so I took their picture. I left the pier. And in Manhattan Beach, to get 
off the pier and back into town. You have to walk this really steep hill. Um, so I'm huffing and puffing walking up the hill and I pass the Strand House, which is this hop-in restaurant that like, you know, it's kind of a single scene. All these people are in there partying and drinking and happy. And that Journey song, Don't Stop Believing, was blaring and they're all singing it together. And I'm not even a fan of Journey. I don't even like their music at all, but I needed to hear the crowd singing that um, and that song at that time because it reminded me here people were celebrating life. For some reason, like I appreciated climbing that Manhattan Beach Hill more than ever um, because in my eyes, the sunset had passed and the sun would, the sun would rise again. So throughout this, you know, I was constantly traveling in and out of LAX um, for work about twice a month. And I hated flying in and out of LAX. And it has nothing to do with the airport or, L or LA. Um, it was because through all my failed IVF attempts and my miscarriages, landing at LAX always felt like a slap in the face to me. Because when you're landing at LAX, it's this really long descent, like it takes forever. And you pass over these beautiful desert mountains and you start to hover a, right, right after the mountains, you hit like the metropolitan LA area, like, which is so big. And, and you get this clear view of one of the most densely populated areas of our country. And thousands upon thousands of homes are just all over the place, these tiny homes. I mean, there's more than you could even imagine. And every time I would do that descent into LAX and I'd see all those thousands of houses. I'd automatically be sitting on that airplane looking out saying, how come all these people can procreate, but I can't. And when you suffer through infertility, just like other forms of mourning, your mind develops these odd markers and reminders. And one of mine was that descent into LAX and all those thousands of homes. But throughout pregnancy loss, also, most of the attention is naturally shed on the woman and her well-being. But imagine being the partner um, and having to stay strong for a woman, woman who's doubled over in pain or who's, you know, nervous all the time. And you're the partner and you have to put your feelings aside the whole time to take care of her, even though you're hurting and you're just as nervous, equally so but you can't show it. You can't show as much of your pain, even though it's equal to hers. And I just believe the partners of women going through fertility issues are, they're the silent heroes. Um, and before we married, George knew of my desire to become a mom. He knew that's all I wanted. And he was so nervous about letting me down that I had no idea, but he actually went and had his sperm count checked before we walked down the aisle. And he presented it to me before we got married. And I was so shocked and so touched. And he just sweetly said, I, I never want to let you down ever. And I want to let you know everything's fine. Yet here we were years later, and it was me and my body that brought us all this heartache into our world. And one time around Christmas, I went into our guest room and I found him lying on the bed with some tears rolling out of his eyes. And I knew he was in the guest room because he didn't want me to see him crying. And I was devastated upon finding him. And I laid down next to him and we cried together because for some reason, Christmas was another marker for us. You know, every year we'd say, well, by next Christmas, we'll have our family. 
And then Christmas after Christmas passed, and it was still just the two of us. So on one of our later IVFs, the doctor said, listen, you've been going through this for a couple of years now. We ought to recheck George's sperm. And the pregnancy process was taking us so long, they figured, you know, we haven't done, checked it in a couple of years. Well, George was a nervous wreck for the results. I mean, nervous, like, like out of his mind nervous. So we sat in the fertility doctor's office waiting for the doctor to come in and share the report with us. And this un, kind of uncomfortable look crossed the doctor's face. And we're both inside our heads like, oh, no. And he sits down. He says, well, we have George's report. And he's like kind of acting all cagey and like not really making eye contact with us. And he said, you know, the average sperm count we see around here is, you know, 20 to 40 million. And um, George's, um, George's is 147.5 million. Okay. So at this point, George shouts, stands up, screams, yes, yes. He's lifting his arms in the air as if he won the freaking lottery or something. Okay. The doctor's averting his eyes out of embarrassment, but clearly it was a good embarrassment. And then George actually said to the doctor, can you write down 147.5 million on one of your business cards and sign it? And I'm sitting there like, oh my gosh, he's not doing this. Okay. So we went home that night and the whole way I'm rolling my eyes and George is flexing his muscles. He's texting all of his guy friends, the business card from the doctor saying 147.5 million. Cause you know, 147 isn't 147 million isn't enough off the charts. The doctor had to add in the 0.5. Um, so he's texting all of his guy friends these pictures with the doctor's signature. And, and that year I gifted him with a t-shirt and it just said 147.5 million. Um, but all of this is to say, my husband is indeed an emotional and physical superhero. So this has been part one of our journey. And I told you I'd make you laugh. There's, there is comedy in there and it's totally what gets you through. But coming ahead, um, there's more unimaginable twists, turns. There's more sadness, but there's more happiness. There's more life lessons and more amazing people I'll meet along the way. And ultimately, there's success, thankfully. So please come back and please join me for part two. Thanks.